each week we've been referencing that we're talking about a parable. We've been going through parables all summer long. This is week nine of ten. And a parable is a story that Jesus tells to help people emotionally connect with the truth about God, his kingdom, or how we fit into it. Parables can be uh, challenging to find the correct interpretation sometimes, the meaning. We want to read more into things than are actually there. Now, so I want to help you try to figure this out. Maybe you're working through parables and you're trying to, like, just carry the weight of them. How do I interpret this and understand this? Think of a puppy dog. Just imagine a puppy dog right now. Any dog owners in the house, a few of you? Pet owners or pet lovers or anything like that. And you're looking at that new puppy you just got. It's like whatever, 10, 13 weeks old. And it's just staring up at you. It's so cute. And it's big eyes. And it's just looking at you. And its ears drop a little when it looks at you. Because it's, it's just like, you know, master. And it's just tail wags a little bit. It's looking for you for affection, treats, love. Like I said, that little tail wagging, just staring at you. It's so hard not to give in and give them every treat that you have. Let them sit beside you on, your, on the couch, sleep on your bed. It's, it's so hard to not do that, isn't it? It's when they look at you with those eyes and you're just like, oh, man. Now, if you've been a parent, an aunt, an uncle, grandparent or whatever, and you've looked down at a small child and they look up at you with those same eyes, don't they? They're looking up at you and they're like, you know, can I? And they're, they've got those, what do we call it, right? Puppy dog eyes, right? They have got those eyes and there's this mix of hope and excitement and heartbreak in their eyes if you say no. It's so hard to resist, isn't it? And you just want to give in and spoil them or let them have what they want because they're just like, please. And you could just sense this excitement in them, can't you? So what does that mean? Does that mean that your child is a dog? Because if that was a parable, that's how we would kind of make those connections sometimes, don't we? You go, this means that. And we see the parable about whatever it is, and we go, this must automatically mean that in the real world, in that parable. Of course you're dog, your, your child is not a dog, or a kid is not a dog, all right? Well, they may bark at you sometimes, leave the toys everywhere, smell funny, you know, who am I talking about right now? Do you know which one I'm talking about? See what I mean? There's some similarities, but those similarities have limits, don't they? Because you don't want to pick up your child's poop for the rest of their lives, do you? No, you don't want to go around with a little bag, do you? No, you're thinking, that's disgusting. Why would I ever want to do that? But we choose to do so with our dogs, don't we? You don't, wanna, you don't wanna have to buy them a very special diet that they must live on separate from your food all the time, right? You do that with kids to start with anyway. They want all their snacks and their food that you don't quite appreciate and everything like that. But then they phase out of that and you're like, oh good, we're all just eating adult food now. But dogs, you know, you're gonna continue to buy them their own food, different than you, right? And you can't get your kids fixed so they can't go around the neighborhood causing trouble, right? Too far? Too far? (laughs) But for a second, for a second when you look down into their eyes, that connection is so real. The puppy dog child look, it's just, it's so tangible and real. They're just like each other. Kids will ask you for things with those eyes that are just as irresistible as a puppy. So think of parables like that. There'll be some similarities, but the overarching idea is to convey truth in an emotional, real way. Theologically sound, 
and practical for us to either catch it and hold on to it like it's so precious or it'll confuse us and we stubbornly are avoiding God's kingdom coming our way. That's what the parable's for. So either we get it and hold on to it or we're like right over our heads. God did that specifically so that people who are searching for him would find him. And those who are not searching for him would not get it. They'd be like, why is he telling us silly puppy stories? What does this have to do with following God? That's why he did it. So let's begin our parable today. And this one comes with a forewarning. I'm going to speak truthfully about our hearts that may cause pain for some because of how hard this can be when you've been made a victim. Overcoming to live out today's parable takes strength, courage, trust, and a level of vulnerability to gain freedom. And so I need you to hear me right now. If this is you, I don't fully understand, but I deeply empathize with you. You're truly remarkable for surviving, and I pray for overcoming. So the background of our parable is this. Jesus' disciples have asked him, who is the greatest in heaven? To which Jesus references a child in attendance and says that his followers must be childlike, meaning that they're unable to advance their own position. Because a child can't become the next president on their own will. They're a child. And we enter the kingdom of God and we, we have kingdom greatness by recognizing that we can't advance our own position. He warns that anyone who takes advantages, advantage of childlike followers meets a terrible end. And he shares how just like a shepherd, he would leave 99 to go after that one childlike follower because he values his childlike followers so much. Jesus then said, this should lead to healthy relationships if we view each other this way. If I'm not trying to gain leverage in my situation, then if I'm trying to look at my life the way that says, childlike, with not being able to advance my own position, it should lead to good relationships. We should receive correction when we fail, and we should see how to handle someone who doesn't want to be corrected, someone who is taking advantage of that community's love and trust. And then this led Peter, one of his boldest but most like all-in disciples, to ask the question that leads to our parable today in a conversation between Jesus and Peter regarding how many times you should forgive a brother or sister who wrongs you. Now, within Judaism, a rabbi taught the answer to that question is three. How many times do you need to forgive somebody? Three times. Then after that, you don't have to forgive them anymore. Jesus, or Peter suggested seven. And he thought he was doing really good. He thought that's a bold answer. That's more than double the three. Now, three and seven are very significant numbers in, in Jewish faith. With three meaning the, the number of the Trinity and seven meaning like a number of perfection. So they were like three, that's pretty good. That's like God forgiving you, Jesus forgiving you, or the Messiah forgiving you, and then the Holy Spirit forgiving you. Like after that, you ran out of gods to forgive you. So they were like, that's it. Or seven being, that's a perfect number of forgiveness. Peter thought he was being really bold with that. But Jesus then, Jesus has an answer for them that's a big surprise. Now, today's parable is found in Matthew 18, 
And it's going to play out like a, a mini play with three different scenes. So pay attention to how the king deals with the servant. And then pay attention to how that servant deals with another servant, an equal. And then, in light of what happens, pay attention to how the king deals differently with the first servant again. So let's read it. This is Matthew 18, 21 to 35, and I'm reading out of the NIV. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Again, thinking that's awesome. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or in some, word, some translations, it'll say 70 times, 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him, and he said, Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Then Jesus says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Let's pray. God, as we take on this passage, this challenging passage that you've given us. God, again, our words don't change. We say, give us eyes to see and ears to hear how to apply this to our lives. May we find ourselves in this story and may we be able to grow from it, learn from it. And may we look more like you as we process this and apply it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we look at the parable, we have to keep in mind again that the parable was given in response to a question. How much do I need to forgive? Okay, that's, that's what it is. And again, it's, it's spoken to followers of Jesus who were supposed to be childlike, unable to advance their own position. So let's dive into it. Now, the king, this king, he comes to settle accounts, and the debt owed was astronomical. And I'm going to do a little bit of math for you here. 10,000 bags of gold, which the NIV uses, 
And in some other translations, they call it a talent because that's what it would be approximately. Now, one talent was equal to 20 years' wages. Okay? One talent equals 20 years' wages. So let's just, let's just work this out. You got a job at Tim Hortons. You're making $15 an hour. Okay? 2,000 hours. That's about how much you work full-time in a year. That would be around $30,000. Now, that's one year, so you have to times it by 20 to get to 20 years, right? So $600,000. That's how much you'd make working at Timmy's full-time for 20 years. 600,000 years, or dollars. That's one talent. Now we need to times that by 10,000. So that equals $6 billion. That's what the guy working at Timmy's owes. That's a lot of money. That, but that would be a number that they'd be able to grasp. They'd re, they could recognize what the number. It wasn't like, you know, kids making up numbers and it's like six quadrillion, gazillion, million, jillion, and you're like, I, I don't even know what you're saying anymore. This would be a number that they could make sense of, right? They could, they could wrap their heads around what $6 billion would look like at, at their their equivalent of it in their, their time frame. But they would also know that it was so astronomically beyond what someone of that position would ever be able to pay back. There's no possible way he could pay it off. 10,000 talents. Listen, it would take 200,000 years of working to, keep, to pay that off. And that's taking none of it your first yourself. 200,000 years, zero interest, which was the law back then. They weren't allowed in, in, in Israel. They were not allowed to charge interest to fellow Israelis, right? So it was very different than here where that 200,000 would look more like six or 800,000 years, but 200,000 years, which makes the servant's response both comical and a little introspective for us. He falls down on his knees and he begs for patience. Just give me more time and I'll pay it all back. Just give me 200,000 more years and I got you. It's true though, isn't it? We often think that all we need is just a little bit more time to work it out. Just a little bit more time with God and we can figure it out in order to make ourselves right with him. But in reality, we can't make it right. No matter how much time we have, we're still going to fall short of making it right. We're not going to solve the problem. It's not patience that we need. It's not patience we need to ask for. It's mercy. The king, though, responds with what's needed, not what was asked for. He takes pity on him, compassion, mercy, he forgives the loan. He absorbs the loss so that the servant can go free. Jesus, again, a chapter before, had already warned that his, his disciples that he was going to die, that he was going to provide a way for debt, the debt of humanity, to be absorbed. Think of the relief that servant must have felt walking out of that meeting. He just freed himself of 200,000 years of trying to pay off a debt. That's pretty amazing. Imagine you owed debt beyond reason. 
your house, a car, furniture, even the clothes you wore, every possession you owed, you, ha- you have, it was all on debt. It was all on credit. You had credit cards maxed out. Everything you have, you had to pay off. But then you didn't. It was all paid off. There was no monthly payments that were required. There was no, no mail coming in that's saying urgent, overdue, no nothing. You were just like, ah, the stress that would leave your life. That's pretty amazing. That freedom, that relief. But the first thing, what does he do? He grabs a fellow servant, choking him by the neck, demanding that he pay back some money he owed. Now, it wasn't an insignificant amount. You know, in our Timmy's worker scenario, that would be roughly $12,000 if you, if you worked it around the same thing. But that's a fraction of what he owed the king. Remember, he owed roughly 600,000 times more than that. So you can see the difference between the debt that's owed there. The servant's response, or the servant responds with the exact same phrase that he had used with the king, showing humility in the same, showing humility is, sorry, is the same. We all try to work out our freedom, don't we? Our salvation. Humility. I said humility, but I meant humanity. It doesn't matter who we are. We all find ourselves in the same position, trying to work out ourselves. Just give me patience. He just needs some patience, and he'll get there. But instead of getting the mercy that he had received, giving the mercy he had received, the first servant throws him in jail to do slave labor to pay it back. Tough question. Is there someone you feel that has done something unforgivable to you? That somebody's offended you so deeply that we sit here and go like, I will never forgive them for that. They owe me because of what they've done to me. And we hold on to that and we don't let it go. It could be real. It could be deep. It could be a broken marriage or a broken relationship that left you just in, in the most worst of circumstances. It could be uh, smaller things just continually built up over time, and we just can't forgive. We won't let go. We want to hold them to account for what they did. But then Jesus is saying something that can both be startling and challenging. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's big. God, in his immense love for us, has had compassion on us and covers our sin, a debt that in our strength is limitless in its size to deal with. Each day, we fall short of God's glory and need his forgiveness. It's like the old hymn saying, he paid a debt he did not owe, and I owed a debt. I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. With his compassion and his mercy, there's no expectation that this will transform us. Or sorry, there is an expectation that this will transform us. 
that when God forgives us in all our depravity and all the brokenness that we are, he looks down and says, you are forgiven. Your debt is wiped. I don't hold it against you anymore. Rightly so, he expects that that's going to transform you. That when you let that sink in, where he has you dead in your tracks, he has you dead in your tracks how much you've rebelled against him, wanting to go your own way. But he says, I forgive you. He expects that that's going to transform you, that you are overwhelmed by that forgiveness, that it softens your heart, and that you're like, wow, if he can forgive me of that, can I forgive others of what they've done against me? In the church, it is the only way we can be in unity is if we can forgive each other. It is the way in which we are marked as his, by our love for one another. How easy is it to love someone that you can't forgive? Near impossible, isn't it? If we're supposed to love each other, then we're going to need to forgive each other. How we handle offense is a witness to others. How we handle people bugging us here is going to be a witness to the world outside. The application is identical to the instruction in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 1 to 15, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's the only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus expands on to bring clarity. Since God has forgiven his disciples so lavishly, they ought to forgive others in the same way. The posture of our heart must always be forgiveness because that is our position before God exclusively because of the work of Jesus paying the debt we deserve but could never pay for ourselves. We only forgive others by remembering how God has loved us and is loving us right now. How we only stand righteous because of Jesus, not because of our own doing. It is vitally important that we do not get the order mixed up in the parable. The king forgave, empowering the servants to forgive. The parable does not teach that forgiving others is a prerequisite for the king's forgiveness. It's neither a prerequisite for us to gain God's forgiveness. Instead, he says, because I forgive, you should be able to forgive. Because I love you, you should be able to love others. If human forgiveness is a requirement for divine forgiveness, then no one can ever be forgiven by God. For both the servant and for us, and the question is this, or this statement is for us, forgiveness isn't freedom until we use it to free others. The parable and its application seek to move the disciple to forgive 
Since you have been forgiven so much, how can you not forgive the other person? When we live with unforgiveness, we find ourselves in a predicament. It's our death that is coming. Unforgiveness is like taking a poison pill and expecting the other person to die. Forgiveness isn't natural to man or to women, to us, because it's so foreign to our fleshly human nature. People find it very hard to, do, to forgive others. But nothing so characterizes the new nature that Christians have as forgiveness. Because nothing so characterizes the nature of our, our Lord Jesus, who blows us away with his words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiveness reflects the highest human virtue because it so clearly reflects the character of God. A person who forgives is a person who emulates godly character. Jesus started this parable off talking about what the kingdom of God looks like. The The kingdom comes with limitless grace in the midst of an evil world, but it comes with limitless demand. This kingdom is spiritual and yet is lived out in the natural. If we are in it, then in some way we are the kingdom of God itself. We bring the kingdom of God wherever we go. And thus the demands of the nature of that kingdom, they must flow through us. And this is how we know we are in Christ, in the kingdom. Now, a person who does not forgive is therefore a person lacking in godly character and without Christ-like love. No no matter how orthodox your theology is or how outwardly impeccable your morals are, the kingdom isn't present if evil and sin are not being named and defeated. And each day, we all need to do that in our own lives. Forgiveness is therefore the key to spiritual unity in the church because it is key to love and the key to all meaningful relationships. Only forgiveness can break down the barriers that sin continually and inevitably builds between people, including God's people. Now, this hit home for me recently with the death of of someone That person had brought immense pain and hurt and suffering and brokenness into my life, into the life of my family. And the nature of their offense was both spiritual and abusive and seemingly unforgivable unforgivable because they were a spiritual leader in the community. And yet, God graciously confronted me to offer forgiveness that would free me not them. It would free me because my forgive, unforgiveness was holding me back from living the way of Jesus. For us today, we are asked as the church to be quick to forgive, to be humble in approaching each other, to eagerly, eagerly accept correction for our growth. And yet we need to do so with understanding and grace. And now, before we start to look around at the room and 
you know, think of the people that should come and ask for forgiveness from us. We just need to note that that never happens in the parable. There's never expectation where somebody sits back and go and wait for them to come back and ask for forgiveness because now they all know they need to. It's never mentioned. Forgiveness was offered, not demanded. There's no repentance that was called for it, but it was, it was given. So what does that look like? What does this play out for us? I want to see this. Number one, forgiveness. Forgiveness is always one way. It's always one way. We are forgiven by God, and you can offer forgiveness. But it's always one way. We satisfy the debt with or without them. Whether you can, can forgive them in person or whether you need to forgive them in your heart, it's always a one-way transaction. You to the offender. End of story. Then, number two, there's reconciliation, okay? Reconciliation is different than forgiveness. Reconciliation is always two-way. Forgiveness, ownership, and boundaries. There's forgiveness for what the offense was. There's ownership of the offense or the person who did the offense owns their part of it. And then there's boundaries set up as what the relationship needs to look like moving forward. You can think of that in a, a husband and wife scenario where one person is taking advantage of the other person and one person needs to do way more to take care of the relationship or the family or the kids than the other person. And that's an offense to the other person because it should be an equal yoke. So from there, it would be reconciling that. I'm sorry that I made you carry too much of the burden of our family. I've taken, I'm taking responsibility for my actions. And now I want to set up proper boundaries so I don't allow that to happen anymore. We put those boundaries in place. The third one is restitution. And restitution, again, is always one way. The forgiven offender does what they can to be a part of the healing process in the life of the one they offended. Restitution isn't always possible. We can't always count on or expect the person that we've offended to pay us back. That comes when uh, it's either enforced by law or when somebody is so contrite within the reconciliation, they offer restitution. Those are three different levels that we need to be aware of. And so we don't expect restitution or reconciliation when what Jesus is talking about is forgiveness. One way. He doesn't ask you to work on restitution or reconciliation. He asks you to work on forgiveness. Today, you may be here and your pride keeps you from being able to forgive others. Maybe you see yourself too highly, not fully embracing the equivalence of a $6 billion debt to God in sin that you owe or have owed. You blinded yourself to the reality of your condition apart from God, and that spills into your relationships with others as unforgiveness. Today, you may be here and you've had trouble accepting God's forgiveness deeply enough to allow it to transform you. 
You may still try to do good deeds and try to make it up to people and try to win favor with people rather than find forgiveness. And you do the same with God. You try to do so much for God to please God rather than live in his forgiveness that he offers. You may be here today and you have been hurt deeply by someone. You've been hurt deeply by someone at a church and you've held on to that and it's become poisoned in you. You may be here and you've been the victim of some ungodly things. The drama, the pain, and the scars seem to be triggered everywhere. And it seems to be too much to allow forgiveness to take place. No matter where you are today, no matter what you've gone through, know that grace, mercy, and compassion of God are here for you so that you can move forward, so you can grab hold of God for what you need. So the question is, what step do you need to take? Forgiveness, reconciliation, restitution. What is God calling you to today? Today, may we not call out, be patient with me, hoping that we can muster up the strength to deal with it in the future that somehow in the future we'll be able to be strong enough to, to make amends for what we owe. But instead, may we fall at the foot of the cross and say, God, include me in that prayer. Forgive me. Forgive them, for they know not what to do. Because most of the time, we have no idea what we're doing. And we need his forgiveness. And we cry out, God, have mercy on me. And may we be quick to forgive. I'm going to pray and invite Ingrid, Pastor Ingrid, up to close. And I know that this can be a, a, a message that gets on us since we want to make sure that there's time for you at the front for ministry. If you need just to talk something through, pray something through, have us pray for you, we'll have a team here to pray for you. So just respect what the front is at this moment so that people can walk through something they may need to in forgiveness. But uh, let's pray. God, we just thank you for your overwhelming forgiveness to us, your overwhelming love for us, your overwhelming desire to be unified with us. You wanted nothing to be able to separate us from you. So you went to extreme lengths to make sure that we could have the forgiveness we need so we could be unified with you. We could be one with you like Jesus prayed in, in John 17, 18, that we could be one with you. God, may we as a church and as individuals not allow unforgiveness to block us from being unified in you. May we not allow offense towards others be something that limits our growth and our ability to move forward with who you want us to be and how you want us to, to live our lives for the godly character that you have for us to take on, to be hampered and limited because of offense, we won't forgive. May our forgiveness truly mark us as your children, as your followers. 
that love will lead us. And love requires us to forgive. God, I just pray for all those who have been hurt so deeply, so deeply by others that it seems near impossible to forgive. God, today may it be a healing balm on their hearts to know that this is about their freedom when they offer forgiveness, allowing their spirit to be free. And may your healing come and touch them today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Pastor Ingrid.